the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task and we had to combine. But together we'll wind up. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, her uh, really nice history of the first weeks of the First World War written in 1962, uh, kind of an American Cold War perspective on, on the origins of the war. And I'm also going to be talking about uh, a short essay she wrote in 1967 in New York Times Magazine called How We Entered World War One, which is about the U.S. entry into the war. Of course, um, that's not really part of the story of the Guns of August, although we got a taste of, of America's position early on in the war in the last episode in the chapter on, on the naval blockade and the British naval policy. But ultimately, of course, Naval issues are going to play a key role in the U.S. entry into the war, and and I just think it fits better. It's in this collection, and it fits better to talk about as, as kind of part of the Guns of August. Um, so, uh, what do we have here? Well, only three chapters left in the Guns of August, uh, chapters 20 through 22, plus we have a little bit of an epilogue. Um, and, um, yeah, let's just jump right into what these chapters have to say and finish up this, this book. Uh, I think all the major themes have already been established, but this, this kind of episode can kind of be a, a wrap up or a summing up of, of this whole book. So, uh, chapter 20 is called The Front is Paris. And of course, this is dealing with the aftermath of the previous chapter, chapter 19 called Retreat, which dealt with the, the, withdrawal of the French armies to, you know, closer to Paris, the seeming victory of the Schlieffen plan, uh, setting up the, the epic battle of the Marne, which of course is going to not really turn the tide, but it's going to halt that advance on Paris and lead to the trench warfare on the Western Front that we're also familiar with. Um, the first thing we get here, though, is this uh, uh, quite a quite a nice description of the panic in Paris. I, I think in the previous chapter, she really did a good job talk, like looking at the panic on the front and the soldiers and the officers kind of scrabbling to make sense of their, the defeat the French armies, I mean, and kind of withdraw to new lines, bring up new units and all that kind of uh, this disaster after the catastrophic attack on um, in Alsace uh, earlier in the war. Um, and this one then deal does a really good job. This chapter does a really good job of describing the panic in Paris, um, both in the sense of the military defeat, uh, which was sort of already been established, but also the, the you know, the moral defeat, the, the desire, the need for kind of a moral, a shoring up of the moral of the Parisian civilians and the military um, and hold the whole morale aspect of, of, of the conflict is kind of well described here. Um, and then also she gets into a little bit the provisioning of Paris, the preparation for a siege uh, that the, the French authorities are going into, uh, getting ready for. Um, um, she also gets into the psychology of this besieged 
uh, city, uh, and she describes it at one point as a national hallucination, uh, specifically the hallucination that the Russians were coming, right? Um, of course, this is around the same time with the Battle of Tannenberg. Now, the Russians did have a victory over Austria uh, in August of 1914, but still there's this sort of belief in the popular memory because it was so much part of the Entente kind of strategy and the thinking about the, the alliance with Russia that eventually the Russian steamroller would, would come and win the war and save the day. There's even rumors of like Russian units arriving to Paris, you know, by sea in some magical way that would, that would save the city of Paris. And of course, none of that happens, but it's, it's part of the, what she calls a national hallucination. Um, let's see if I can find the passage. Yeah, here it is. Uh, uh, in the sudden and dreadful realization that the enemy was winning the war, people searching for hope seized up, uh, upon a tale that they have cropped up within the last few days and turned it into a national hallucination. Uh, on August 27th, a 17-hour delay in the Liverpool-London rail service inspired the rumor that the trouble was due to the transport of Russian troops who were said to have landed in Scotland on their way to reinforce the Western Front, uh, end quote. Um, but uh, there is some interesting stuff here, too, about the British, how the British were the least kind of set up for a, for a significant war effort. Somehow the French were more psychologically prepared for, for, a, for a long war maybe than the British were. Um, among, quote, among, alone among the belligerents, Britain had gone to war with no prearranged framework of national effort, no mobilization orders in every pocket, except for the regular army, always improvisation. And during the first weeks before the Amiens dispatch, almost a holiday mood. End quote. Um, very different in Paris, though, where uh, still that same kind of disorder. I mean, the plans broke down and things had to be done on a ad hoc basis. And it seems that was the whole uh, British war effort as well. Um, but it all comes together in, in, a, uh, in the Battle of the Marne, I guess. It does, they do manage to pull out a victory from this, from this chaos. But I, I just think Tuckman does a really good job in this chapter of, of giving you the sense of... of the end of the end of the world coming right and the, the the imminence of defeat and the hope that people in that situation cling to uh in order to to you know get on with their lives and you almost need it right to to mobilize the the population for what could be a, a long siege uh, that of course never really really ha never really happened um and that's that's pretty much uh there's not much more to say about the book until we get to the, the afterward or the, the epilogue. I guess it's called an afterward. I mean, there's two more chapters. Chapter 21 is von Kluck's turn and chapter 22 is the flight at the Marne. And the, von Kluck's turn deals more with the German perspective at this eve of victory. This, uh, this sense that the Sulifan plan is, is, at the, is at a moment of success. Um, but at the same time, this constant reminder, this is what she does throughout this whole book, is constantly inter interjecting the confidence um, or fatalism of different players and different actors in this war with realism, right? Reality gets in the way, right? Um, you know, things like the hunger that the German soldiers begin to face uh, because of, you know, the best laid plans don't always go according to you know don't always work out and you had hunger among the german troops you had the arrival of the british a little bit quicker than they had expected so things weren't you know always not quite going according to the plan but you know when you put all of your eggs in this plan the, the Stephen plan and things don't work exactly right it can be very disconcerting for 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 people um so that's so there there's this sense of victory in this chapter but there's also 
a little bit of chaos thrown in. And, and I think she does a good job of, of balancing these things. Chapter 22, the, the, um, we'll fight them at the Marne. It's a quote. Gentlemen will fight them on the Marne is the name of chapter 22. And this uh, basically sets up uh, the situation for the Battle of, of the Marne. And it ends the book. And the way she ends the, the chapters with a very ominous statement. Uh, quote, that was all. At the time, and the, all, the time for splendor was past. It did not shout forward or summon men to glory. After the first 30 days of war in 1914, there was a premonition that little glory lay ahead, end quote. So, um, yeah, the, you know, the war would become something new at the end. I think that's the main thesis here is, is all this planning. She spends the whole first quarter of the book, um, you know, before any guns are fired, just about the planning, just about the, the, the institutions of the military and what they thought the war would be. And then the rest of the book really unlays, you know, what it really was. And sometimes it went according to plan, but never, never fully. And that's, it's, it's about the fog of war, really. That's what this book, I think, ultimately is about. Um, so then we get a nice afterward. And I think the afterward serves as a, as a good summary of the themes of this text. Um, well, she starts out kind of, uh, Picking up with the significance of the Marne, which anyone who studied World War I history and all knows, it really did defeat the Schlieffen plan. At the end, save Paris and, and set up both sides for what would become a prolonged, uh, a stagnant war of, of uh, entrenches. Um, massive casualties, but little mobility on all sides. Um, but I, I guess uh, when she starts getting into the themes of this book explicitly, which she never really does throughout it. it it's really much more of a narrative history she doesn't have that kind of formal analysis you get in more academic history um which i don't know how well this book is received by like academic scholars of, of world war one I. I think it's a good book but um i could see if this was submitted as a dissertation maybe some professors might grumble a little bit that you know you don't have an original thesis or you don't lay out clearly your your argument or you, your evidence is all coming from this from from elite sources or, or that the kind of stuff that professors will, will say um, but she does in the afterward kind of lay out her argument a little bit more systematically not fully but a little bit more systematically and i think the biggest one to point out is is what she calls the ifs of war um, and there's just too many these these are always inevitably there so this is this is it it's you know, if you were going to have a subtitle to the Guns of August, it would be the ifs of war. You know, if Brussels refuses the ultimatum, if the Schlieffen plan doesn't go according to plan, if the Russians mobilize a little quicker, if the French attack, you know, these are all ifs, things that can't fully be known. And all sides face them. Um, I guess I guess if there's a weakness of the book, it's like we don't really get the Austrian perspective at all. She's just not interested in that or the Serbian. There's other belligerents, there's other fronts of the war. But I, I bet you it's the same story there, right? Where the plans, I, I think certainly the Austrian plans in Serbia did not go very well, right? That was, uh, it took it took the intervention, I think of like, uh, it wasn't until Bulgaria got involved in the war, I think that Serbia was finally finally occupied by, by Austria. But anyways, the ifs of war, I think that's the, the core theme. Um, we also have here, of course, the, the failure of the Schlieffen plan as a major theme of, of the text. 
Um, I think that goes without saying. Um, even when it seemed to be victorious, it was failing at the margins and ultimately failed fully because it was just too intricate of a plan. It's kind of interesting how the French plan was so uh, undetailed. It was like attack when you have an opportunity, use Elan, you know, take back, use our nationalist passion for revenge. Uh, and that will win the battle, right? That's how the French will overcome their numerical disadvantages. The German plan, on the other hand, was all down to timetables and provisioning and all this very Clausewitzian uh, kind of obsession about provisioning and planning and, and supply and logistics and all that. Um, another theme she hints at, uh, and she deals with it explicitly in the afterward, but it certainly is throughout the whole book, and it's, it's hard to see in a way because we're dealing with just with the first month in the war when this really wouldn't matter as much as it would a year, two years, three years down the road. But that's the necessity of hope to sustain a war effort, right? Uh, specifically in this case, uh, the hope that victory can come, right? That even when victory seems impossible, that, you, that idea that somehow victory can happen, there's a way we can win this war. That is the only way a war effort can really be, be sustained in an era of mass society, right? Maybe Russia is an outlier here, Russia being the most autocratic of these states, the least well-developed civil society, the least input from its citizens. Um, but, you know, everywhere else you had some degree of a civil society of, of where the governments had to respond to some degree to the public opinion, uh, certainly more so in France and in Britain and the United States and maybe in Germany or Austria, uh, Russia being probably the least developed of these. Um, but even there, you know, this, this focus on the needing of hope to sustain the war effort. The way she puts it is, quote, men could not sustain a war of such magnitude and pain without hope. The hope that its, very, that its very enormity would ensure that it could never happen again. And the hope that when somehow it had been fought through a resolution, the foundations of a better order world would have been laid, end quote. And I think this becomes very key in the U.S. entry to the war later on because the U.S. Uh, had a huge chunk of its population was not was a passive was were pacifists uh i think uh, interventionists pass I'm, I'm i want to not confuse the terms here because some of these were used in the 30s and some were used in the pre-world war one era um but i think pacifism was was the what tuckman uses in her essay on on the u.s entry into the war um but there, like Wilson had to have this this kind of bogus rhetoric about the war to make the world safe to democracy and the 14 points. And although I think he certainly believed in it to a degree, it was also propaganda at home, right? That we not only can we win this war, if we win it, the world will be better at the end. And of course, the story of the 20th century makes all this that much more of a tragedy um, because it didn't do any of those things it, it, it intended to do. Um, uh, she gets a little bit into why the Marne was so decisive, specifically because the Marne committed both sides even more to the war. It was it was a, a major victory for the Allies, but it didn't bring the war any closer to an end. Because I guess this is the the main and the other main theme. If one theme is the ifs of war, the fog of war, if you will, the other major theme is that all these countries were in a trap. Um, and as, as we'll see, even the United States, to a degree, was was trapped uh, into having to enter the war in some way in, in a geopolitical sense. Maybe this is all too real politique, you know, ge geopolitical realism. 
there, but I think there's some truth to it. Um, she sees all these countries as, as having laid a trap for themselves, whether in their war planning, in their nationalism, in their their goals of the war, in their uh, in the case of the British, their defense of Belgium, their command structure, their mobilization structure, all that set up a trap for them. And one of the biggest traps was like whether you were winning or losing because there was never that knockout blow, that really decisive battle, that, that battle that would have destroyed one army and led to the marching on the capital. Either we need to commit all our, like on one side, the, the side, like the French side, where they're fighting on the French soil, we have to defend our territory to the last man. Or in the case of the German side, we're winning, right? On the map, right? You look at the map, it looks like you're winning. And in fact, you might be you know, losing slowly. Um, which was the case. Of course, the war ended without any Allied troops really entering German territory. Uh, so this this feeling of a trap. I, I think this afterward does a good job of kind of summing up the major themes of 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 this book. Um, as for criticisms, I, I've already mentioned one of them. I think she's she's just ignorant of, or consciously excluding, or not interested in the situation in in south southeast europe uh, which of course is strange because that's where the war, war began we get a little bit on the ottoman empire uh just one chapter and then it's kind of dropped i don't think there's that much to say militarily about what the ottoman empire did in august of 1914 but there is more to say about the ottoman empire i think and the the arab lands and the situations of arab people and greeks in the ottoman empire and uh, the Russian border, the Armenians, you know, I think someone writing a book like this now would certainly be much more cognizant of that part of the world. And it might just be that she didn't really know much about it or didn't really want to think of researching that stuff. Her main interest is this German. I mean, the chapter on the Ottoman Empire is really about German diplomacy in 1914. Uh, we don't got anyth anything really about Serbia except that the Serbian, you know, bullet started the war. Uh, you know, the Sarajevo assassination. Uh, we don't get anything about the Austrian war effort, either against Russia or Serbia. So that's missing. That's that's uh, one criticism. Another criticism is, I think, if this were written now, some of these criticisms are just maybe because from its time, but, um, you know, had this even been written, I think, 10 years later, I think she'd be much more aware of, like, the, the soldier's perspective. We don't get much about that. She's, her main interests are the generals, uh, which fits her thesis because she's looking at the planning and the institutions of the military. And so it's not a big focus of hers to think much about what the common soldiers get into. And there's a bit, there's taste of it here and there. But I think if she had written this after the trauma of the Vietnam War, just 10 years later, she, you know, when soldiers were coming back from Vietnam broken and, you know, and you have the anti-war movement and all that kind of stuff. I think that would have changed your perspective of this war. We might have gotten a little bit more from the common soldiers perspective. Um, yeah, I think those are the really only two criticisms I have. Otherwise, it's a really, really solid, solid military history of and diplomatic and political history of, of August 1914. All right. So that's that. Um, so. That's all I'm going to say about the guns of August. Um, I do want to talk about how we entered World War One, which 
We being the United States. She's an American, of course. This was written or published in 1967 in the New York Times Magazine. And it serves as a kind of straight up uh, narrative history of, of the United States during the war up until it's the entrance in, in early 1917. Um, so she's got some really good themes here that are really interesting because she's kind of grappling with the U.S. as a world power when she's writing this. And here, I think definitely maybe Vietnam is on her mind um, because she starts out talking about the U.S. in 1917, on April 2nd, when, when the U.S. entered the war, the U.S. was a major power, uh, a great power, I guess using the language of the time, a great power, but it kind of in effect, but not officially. And the war somehow brings America that status as a great power, which it lacked, right? Now, of course, now historians would focus on things like the conquest of the Philippines, uh, imperialism in Latin America, and say, oh, what are you talking about? You know, the United States was clearly an empire from, the, from even the beginning, right, with the attitude, you know, we had these internally colonized areas, Indian reservations, and that whole history of the 19th century is one of internal colonization. But as a world power, respected and understood as a world power, economic and in a military sense, that comes out of World War I. Um, and then she kind of looks at the broader geopolitical significance of this, which is the world power in the 20th century shifted from Europe to the periphery, right? To, to Russia, to the United States, to, and now to Asia increasingly. She doesn't get that far. Although she does mention China, which is pretty... Uh, there's a little bit to dissect there in her comments about China because China was far from a great power or a pure competitor of any sense in uh, 1967, but it was undergoing its own revolution and there was the Vietnam War, which was not quite reaching its peak, but it was, it was getting there in, in 1967. Um, so there's some really interesting comments later on. I'll get to in a bit. But anyways, uh, after talking about this, she gets into memory about World War One, and she, you know, this is like the Forgotten War. I guess the Korean War is, I guess it's called the Forgotten War, but this one sometimes is the second runner-up to that title of the Forgotten War. The Civil War, the Great American War, the Great American Conflict, World War II, the Great American Adventure, the, the, the high point of America as a, as a, as a world power, uh, the great, the, the, you know, the most moral war, the, you know, all the mythology about World War II, it's all there, right? And she said World War I was sort of the forgotten war and all this. And World War I, you know, she talks about how when she wrote her book, The Zimmerman Telegram, and in fact, there are enough Barbara Tuckman books at Library of America could easily publish another volume of her stuff if they wanted. But one of her books is on the Zimmerman Telegram. I'm not sure how interesting that is. But it might be if we get some kind of Mexican perspective on all this stuff and if it feeds into... I mean, I'm kind of curious her approach to this, but if it's just straight up diplomacy, I'm not that interested. But if it gets into the psychology of American empire, it might be interesting. If you don't know, the Zimmerman telegram was the uh, this telegram that the Germans gave to Mexico, basically saying, if the U.S. joins the war, you can join the war on our side. And if we win, you can get like back the territory lost in the Mexican War. Right. And this became part of the argument for why the U.S. joined. Sometimes seen as one of the founding, one of the reasons the U.S. joined the war is it was seen as straight up German aggression. 
Um, yeah, she even talks about Vietnam here. She's like, quote, these words would describe so aptly our attitude towards the war in Vietnam that is irritated and bewildered, um, establish a link between the two experiences. The first experience was governed by the old illusion and the present experience by a new one. World War II, on the other hand, with the imperative of Pearl Harbor supplying an understood cause and purpose did not sow doubt and sell mistrust. It was clear why we got in, end quote. So that leads her to her question, why World War I? Why do we get into World War I? So it's a nice little essay. Um, so obviously Wilson you know, becomes president in 1913, and he's committed to this, I think, what, what was it called? This new democracy platform, which is kind of this Democratic Party version of progressivism. And you can take a course in U.S. history, get a refresher on all those debates. Remember, all the major candidates in 1912 were progressives, but progressive of different, of different perspectives. You had uh, Eugene Debs, Taft, Wilson, and Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. War is not on anyone's mind at the time. Um, but once war breaks out, you know, Wilson is a believer in this, quote, safe isolation of the United States, as were most Americans. Um, now, sympathies tended to go more allied. I guess that has to do with language and, and culture. And if you're following my other podcast here about Lovecraft, you remember I talked a lot about Lovecraft's uh, early, early during the war you know, he was interested, he wanted to see the U.S. join the war because the British were like our compatriots, our culture, our racial uh, compatriots. And we, we owed it to our old imperial mother to side with them in their great struggle. Um, that's not the majority view, of course, but there is a broad kind of maybe more sympathy for the allies for ideological reasons, but I think also cultural, uh, although Tuckman doesn't really get into that. Um, there's also the the loans and the arms the selling of arms. Now this, she may says, it was purely an American interest. It, America would have been stupid not to allow its banks to loan money to the allies. And it would have been stupid in a short term anyways, long term, we could have that debate. But uh, short term, it made sense to sell arms. So now who did who to sell to? Well, selling to the central powers just wasn't an option for reasons we talked about actually in the last episode. The, you know, the Germans just didn't have access to the world markets um, the way the British did. And so if you were to sell arms, you had to sell it to the place you could get it to. And that happened to be Great Britain. And that was sold to the public and accepted by the public as basically self-interest, right? Good business. And then, of course, you get the German military blockade, the submarine blockade, which develops later in the war. And this leads to attacks on U.S. shipping, you know, uh, or Americans are killed in a variety of of events. Now, this doesn't immediately bring the U.S. into the war, but it helps contribute to this feeling of German belligerence and aggression. Now, some of this feeds into Belgium, and she has a whole section here about the media reports on Belgium uh, and German atrocities. Again, stuff we talked about in the last episode. It certainly did have an impact on how Americans saw, um, saw the war. Um, Now, before too long, you have a, a presidential election, right, in 1916. And so there's a debate within Democratic Party, Democratic Party between like William Jennings Bryan and Wilson and, and other competitors for the presidency. And here's uh, what she writes about this. 
Tense and protracted negotiations followed, in which Wilson's almost impossible task was to force Germany to acknowledge these rights, the rights to tr- trade with Britain, without the ultimate threat of war, which was the last thing he wanted. He had to pick his way along a narrow ridge between the precipice of war on the one side and that abdication of neutral rights as advocated by his Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, on the other. Representing the Pacific position that no interest was worth defending at the risk of war, Bryan became spokesperson of the demand that Americans be warned not to travel on belligerent ships, end quote. Again, I, I'm reminded of the conflict uh, between... Um, uh, well, the the conflict during like the Jefferson Adams and Jefferson's presidencies during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you know, how do you maintain neutrality when you're trading with with one or another country that's at war? Um, how do you keep Americans safe in, in the shipping lines if you're trading with belligerents? It's the same same issue coming up here again. Um, yeah, the, the, William Jennings Bryan, you know, was not only a major player in the Democratic Party, but a, a but the Secretary of State at the time. Now, I don't know if he was if he really took a shot for the presidency in 1916, or was it? I mean, in those days, the candidate was chosen kind of behind closed doors. Um, I imagine he must have been in, like discussed because he had been candidate so many times previously. Such a major player in the in the party. But anyway, so she, Tuckman spends a lot of time talking about the difficulty of neutrality and that. But she sums it up as saying, basically, this was denying the real issue. And the real issue was, is the U.S. going to be a great power in, in, a, in, in fact, not just uh, in terms of its economic power? Was it really going to step on the world stage? Um, and could it pretend not to be? Um, basically, the game, that's the big difference, I guess, between... 1800 and in 1916 is the u.s was a great power in 1916 it wasn't in 1800 and the neutrality was more difficult to sustain um so then she gets a lot into like the here i i love this stuff and i think this may have been influenced by the vietnam war the fact that she puts a lot of focus on domestic opinion about war and peace uh she talks about pro-german sentiment uh, among people in the West, uh, where there's a lot of people of German descent, a lot of people still still, still spoke German, uh, had families back in the old country. Um, you had uh, the isolationists and the interventionists, which of course is still an issue in both major political parties of the United States. Uh, I, something I've been thinking more and more about. Most, I guess, people on the political left, I'm not talking about the Democratic Party here, but the political left tend to be more anti-interventionist, uh, seeing any U.S. intervention as as kind of tainted by the sin of, of U.S. empire. I don't know how I feel about that anymore. I think there's a place for that because, you know, the whole world is kind of shifting away from democracy. So I, I worry, you know, where do we stand on that? It's it, We might be flawed, and the United States is certainly flawed in, in a million ways, but uh, that's not an excuse for neutrality in the face of, of, of actual political evils out there. Um, but anyways, um, some of this is really good stuff, really, really thoughtful. Uh, quote, the attitude of the American people towards foreign conflict in the 20th century has been divided between those who regard the enemy or potential enemy as a threat to American interests and way of life and are therefore interventionists and those who recognize no such danger and therefore wish us to stay home and mind our own business. Who belongs to which group is decided by the nature of the enemy? 
When, as in the years before 1945, the enemy was on the right, our interventions by and large, our interventionists by and large came from the left. When, as in the years since 1945, the Soviet Union and Communist China replaced the right-wing powers of Germany and Japan as our opponents, American factions switched roles in response. End quote. I don't know if that's any less true now, I think, to a certain degree, right? With China uh, being an increasing threat, a lot of the, inter the isolationists are, are now on the left who have some sympathies with, with the People's Republic of China for whatever reason. So anyway, she gets into World War I era, and she says there's, there's ideological div divisions that are somewhat geographical, like the, you know, the Midwest being a little more isolationist because of maybe some pro-German sympathies. Um, you got the progressives and the socialists who are more um, isolationists. Um, and, and conservatives who are a little more interventionists. Quote, interventionists insist that America must join in the battle of the democracies against tyranny, a cause embarrassed by the inconvenient lines of the czar, end quote. I think uh, Tuckman is, is right to kind of point out that the ideological arguments are all kind of tainted here because it's not, there's not the clear ideological divisions as there was in, in World War II. Um, but anyways, where does this all come to? Well, basically the thesis she makes is in both World War I and World War II, although more clearly so in World War II, the U.S. had this debate and with this debate, the political debate, and here the election of 1916 is the central event that forced Wilson to side with the isolationists, at least vocally, whatever his internal opinions might have been. You know, the U.S. was forced to be, be outright attacked, to be pushed to a point where the enemy had to be an aggressor and therefore an existential threat to the United States. Now, it's still less clear. In World War II, you, of course, have Pearl Harbor which uh, and the German declaration of war, which made it an easy decision. In the U.S., it was basically this unrestricted submarine warfare declared by Germany in, in early 1917, um, which, of course, is that's right. But that's even before Wilson started his second term. Um, so... That is the deciding event. But this, this, you know, what's her feeling about this? Is this a good thing to do? She talks about, uh, uh, what's, what's her words for this? Let me find it. Oh, here, acquisitive and preventative war. Quote, two kinds of war, acquisitive and preventative, make hard explaining, and the last more so than the first. Although the first might be considered less moral, it is far, so far in human experience, Extract, extract morality has never notably determined the conduct of states and a good justifiable reason like need or irredentism or manifest destiny can always be found for the for taking territory besides acquisitive wars tend to be short sharp and successful and success never needs explaining but it is never possible to prove a preventive war to have been necessary for no one can ever tell what would have happened without it so an acquisitive war is that territory is ours we're going to claim it and we're going to fight for it right uh whatever uh this preventative war is we're going to fight war to prevent something worse from happening down the road right and and i think why it's so important she talks about this is even though wilson waited until the u.s was basically able to say germany was clear belligerent basically essentially declared war in the united states through unrestricted submarine warfare um you know the 
and of course, with World War II, you have this attack of, on Pearl Harbor. But a lot of these other World War, or 20th century conflicts, and the one she's probably thinking the most about, with is, which is Vietnam, uh, are in such as this preventative style, like this a war to prevent something much worse from happening later on, right? Whether the, the fall of East Asia, Southeast Asia to communism or something like that, right? Um, but... You know, but uh, but anyways, for better or for worse, that's what the U.S. did, right? And then her conclusion here is that this is all this is kind of preventative war is very dangerous, and the reason it's dangerous, uh, well, for, one thing she says is like this was America's waking up as a world power, and it's made us kind of miserable <laughs> in the 20th century. Like we've had no end to turmoil because of our status as a great power. Um, and she says, now's the time to basically have to come to terms with, with difference in the world. Because if you have these ideological concepts driving why you make decisions like going to war or not, these ideological decisions, it's, it's not going to work in a world in which you have competing ideologies and civilizations and institutions. Quote, we cannot mold the non-Western world to our desires nor require its acceptance of our concepts of political freedom and representative government. It is too late in history to export to the nations of Asia and Africa with unschooled and unnourished populations in the hundreds of millions, the democracy that evolved in the West over a thousand years of slow, small-scale experiences from the Saxon village moot to the Bill of Rights. They have not had the time to learn it, and history is not going to give them time, end quote. Now, I don't fully agree with her here. I think... In the case of China, there actually is an, uh, a narrative of, of, of democracy and, and, and liberty uh, in the late Qing and the early Republican period, which you can uh, kind of unveil. It may not be the most well-developed, but it's certainly there. And we see it coming to head at the very time she's writing, like during the Cultural Revolution. There was this debate over the nature of Chinese democracy. And that would continue until the until the 70s and 80s, the democracy wall movement and eventually the Tiananmen Square movement. So I don't know if I fully agree with her on this, but I see where she's coming from. And she's she's basically trying to point out the danger of 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 this kind of preventative war, I think. Um, not that acquisitive war is, is much preferable, but she, she kind of where this fits into the other to the main story i think of the guns of august is the us also sort of laid a trap for itself um, in its you know in its ideology in its uh, in, in its engagement in the atlantic economy at the time and and other reasons so it, it's you kind of get the same sense that america the united states got kind of trapped into into a war um, but a very different type of document, though, written in a, with the Vietnam War much more on our mind. Uh, I think that's one reason you might want to explore that. So that's it. A little bit of a longer episode because I had a little bit more to deal with here. Um, but I really enjoyed that essay. More, more, more so actually than The Guns of August. I, I like reading it. Um, so anyways, next, epi next episode, we'll start looking at The Proud Tower. Um, it's a little... I think I can justify four episodes here, and I'll tell you why. It's, it's actually about 450 pages long, so I could go either way, four or five episodes. I'm going to go four just because there's eight chapters. So I'm going to look at two chapters, 
of the of the Prow Tower each episode over the next two weeks. So it's called the Portrait of the World Before the War in eighteen ninety to nineteen fourteen. So it's it almost is a, a, a prequel to the Guns of August. But I'm not going to try to talk about the Guns of August more because much because I don't want this all just to be about a teleology to war. I want this to really let us examine this 25-year period, which I think is a really fascinating period. And I think we get mostly European history. We don't really get world history. So the title is wrong. Um, but, you know, if you're interested in European and American history from this period, as I am, uh, I'm actually, actually all of world history in this period fascinates me. But um, we'll make do with what we got here. Um, so the quote, the Proud Tower, comes from The City in the Sea by uh, Edgar Allan Poe. While from a proud tower in the town, death looks gigantically down. So that's going to make it hard, I guess, not to think about World War I around the corner. But that's, that's partially Tuckman's intention here. Anyways, the first two chapters we'll look at next time are uh, ones about England uh, called the Patricians, which I think is about the ruling class in, in England. And then the idea and the deed, the anarchists. So I'm really excited to look at that because it's been a while since I've been able to talk about the anarchists. Uh, my YouTube channel where I try to look at the anarchists a little bit. I haven't been doing much with that. So I'm excited to look at um, these two chapters. Um, so that'll be up next. So I will see you next time. If you have any thoughts about the Guns of August or World War One, the U.S. entry into World War One, or any of the things I talked about in this entire series, Drop me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but in any case, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. On the Rhine, when we wound up the watch on the Rhine, crept of paper was all we can find. With assurance they'll hold till the sun shall go cold with the wine.